0: Okay, Uh, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Thank you all for coming. It's good to see you. Uh, This talk, we're we're very uh, happy to welcome Dr. Romani Wazwaz. This is the third talk in a series um, about ancient um, Arab and Muslim scholars from the 700s, 800s, 900s, kind of a piece of history that often gets overlooked. And so it's been a very fascinating look at the interplay of uh, cultures, and conversations and the dis- the, the uh, transfer of knowledge between um, ancient civilizations. So I've been very appreciative of this. Thank you, Amani, for your time. Amani's a literature um, and communications instructor here at Moraine. With that, I will turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Can everybody hear me? OK, and thank you for my audience for being here. Uh, it's wonderful seeing all of you. And I would like to begin with a story. And it begins in the ninth century. And it begins when a 92-year-old gentleman was going home. And all these books fell on him. and. It's giving me trouble already, OK? I all right. I, I will tell you this tragic story. So while Troy is fixing this for me, the, all these books fell on him, and he passed away. He died. He was 92 years old. And the irony is, this gentleman's life revolved around books. He spent his life reading books, and he spent his life writing books. You know, quite a bit, 250 to 300 books. So it's quite ironic and fascinating that he should die by books. This gentleman's name, his name is Al Jahidh, the man whose eyes stick out. In Arabic, Abu Uthman Amru ibn Al Qinani Al Basri. And he lived in the ninth century. And his family was from Ethiopia. But he himself was born in Basra. al jahiz worked as a fisherman when he was a little kid. And from being a fisherman, he brought food and money for his family. And he studied in a Quran school. And he educated himself in the bookstalls of Basra, he would run out book stalls the whole night and read as many books as possible and educate himself. So yeah, he loved books tremendously. And he created all these books on all these different subjects, literature or adab, rhetoric, biology, zoology, history, psychology, and theology. And when he was an adult, he went to Baghdad. And Baghdad was a very rich empire during that time. And it was very developed. And the irrigation systems were phenomenal. And this was part of his adult world. This was Baghdad. In order to understand al-Jahithas, accomplishments, we need to understand the cultural context in which he was working. So the PowerPoint changed a little bit, switched around, but I'll give you the name of the Caliph or the leader of the Muslim Empire at that time was Caliph al-Ma'mun. And Caliph al-Ma'mun loved knowledge tremendously and he loved gathering information and loved inspiring authors and scholars to research information on alchemy, engineering, mathematics, and astronomy. And he paid a lot of money for people to pursue knowledge. And he himself, this caliph, has a very interesting story. Because one day when he was dreaming, he dreamt of none other than Aristotle. Aristotle came to his dreams, and Aristotle told him You can connect the rationalism of Greek thinking with the new religion of Islam, and you can do wonders. And Khalifa al was very inspired. Aristotle, the great Greek, had spoken to him in his dreams. And so what he did was he gathered these people around him. And he said, you are going to go around the world and gather as much of the ancient Greek knowledge and knowledge from other nat- nations as possible and bring it back and bring it back the thing is during that time a lot of this knowledge was trapped in crumbling buildings and in monasteries and in libraries that were going to waste and so he called on his people and he told them go ahead go and bring this knowledge wherever it is that you find it and I will pay you, and I will pay you well for it. He not only paid them well, he also paid the translators well as well, too. So the translators were Muslim, were Jewish, a lot of them were Christian. And the thing is, these Christian translators, they knew Arabic, they knew Greek, they knew Syriac. So they knew all these languages, and that was a big plus to have if you were part of that empire at that time. It meant that you became financially secure. So for example, over here, what, you, what I have up on the screen, I have this family, the Ibn Isha' family, and the, and the father translated, and then the son also translated. So you had families that were translating and that were securing their financial future. It was a very exciting time, bringing all of this knowledge from different lands and preserving it and giving it to scholars to add on more to it. So for example, these people knew Greek. They would take the Greek text, and they would translate it to Syriac. Syriac is a Semitic language, it's not Arabic, it's Semitic. They would take the Syriac and translate it once again, from Greek to Syriac to Arabic, and present it to the caliph. And the caliph would pay them very well. And the caliph would present this information to his scholars, to his scientists, who would read it, question it, and add more knowledge to it. This dynamic world, this dynamic world that loved knowledge and learning, this is the world that al jahiz was part of. And he loved it. And he was part of it. And he created amazing books, 250 to 300 I mentioned earlier. I want to concentrate in particular today on the Book of Animals or the Book of Living Beings. He started writing it in 847, and he passed away in 868, so he must have been in his 70s when he started writing. So for our culture that tells us that after a certain particular age we should stop pursuing knowledge, that is not true whatsoever. Your mind continues to be ever alert, and he is one example of a gentleman who kept on thinking and producing knowledge and writing. This book, The Book of Animals, what does he have inside of it? He's got pre-Islamic poetry. He's got passages from the Quran. He's got humorous stories and philosophy and metaphysics and sociology and anthropology. This is not your modern day biology book. It isn't. And we have to think the way that those people at that time used to think in the ninth century. In our day and age, when we take a biology class, we concentrate a lot on biology. Or at least our textbooks are biology-based. When we take organic chemistry, that's what we concentrate on. But back then, the book is a mixture of different knowledge and different ways of thinking. Because the truth is, our minds are constantly making connections between different fields. We don't think, if you're in literature, that you're just thinking literature all the time. You're thinking of other things as well, too. This is al jahith for you. He put his heart and soul in his book so much that you could almost hear a sense of his voice. I highly recommend this author, Rebecca Stott, wrote um, the book called Darwin's Ghost, And she wrote beautifully about him and other evolutionary scientists. And I recommend um, that you read her book if you're interested in evolutionary biology. And she had this to say about him. What we know of him comes from his own beautiful, and tantalizing descriptions of conversations his descriptions of bird feeders and bedouins the bedouins the arabs who lived outside who lived close to nature and were one with nature the glimpses he gives us of places streets and rooms on every page of the book of living beings his voice is hauntingly alive and engaging, reaching us across more than a 1,000 years. Voice, power, enthusiasm. He had it, and he communicated it in his writing. And he went to the masjid. He went to the mosque. And the mosque is a place for worship, but it's also a place for debate. And it's also for a place for information gathering and debating that information. And he engaged in discussions with the other scholars in, in the mosques, and at times he poked fun at them, and he recorded that in his book as well too. And Rebecca Stott has this to say: In turning Basra, Iraq, conversations into words on pages, Jahath sometimes made a kind of poetry. How beautiful to take people's everyday conversations, record them. And 1,300 years later, people can hear what people in Basra, in Iraq, were talking about. It is amazing. It's almost like time travel. And him, being a devout Muslim, he felt God created everything perfect. His book of living beings was a record of him observing the world around him. His aim in writing it was to look and look very carefully. Because by reading the Quran, he was inspired to look and observe. He felt this is what God wanted us to do. God wants us to observe the world around us. Because the world and nature, everything has clues in it. And everything allows us to understand God's mind and our place in it. And so this is what he did. He packed it with facts and observations. He felt everything in nature, pointed to the existence and wisdom of God. There was no doubt about it. Look in nature. Look at the plants, at the animals. They all very much prove the existence of God. And God created everything beautifully and perfectly. In looking at the world and observing it all around him. His aim was not to understand the nature of the universe. His aim was to observe it. God had already created a perfect universe. His aim was not to find out how it came into being. God brought it into being. Just observe it so you could understand it and understand the mind of God. This is what he aimed for. Observe. Look around you. Because when you pay attention, you are going to learn and learn a lot. And this is what he did. So families from Ethiopia, he's born in Basra. And what he did was this. He would travel through the Tigris River to Baghdad and observe and observe what's going on in Baghdad. And then he would go up to Samarra and observe what's going on in Samarra. And so in his hometown, birthplace in Basra, he observed all of these domesticated animals and made a record of them and described them and described their behavior. So he observed all of these domesticated animals. And in Baghdad and in Samarra. He got to see the royal palaces, and he got to see these caliphs. They brought in animals from different parts of the world, and they put it in their gardens. So they brought it all together, and it was paradise for him. It was fascinating. All of these animals that are not part of Basra and Baghdad and that area, He got to see them, more for him to observe, more for him to write down the nature of these animals. And then he goes on into Samara and these royal palaces and the zoological gardens. And it's more a feast for his eyes. What's going on there? This is all fascinating. And he's observing. And he's writing. Because this is what God wants us to do, he said. Observe and write. And he asks questions. He asks a lot of questions. For example, bring a crocodile from India. Bring it over to Baghdad. Why did it die? Why did it not survive? He's really paying attention to these beloved animals. What is it exactly about Baghdad that's not right with the crocodile? Okay, why is it that? elephants and giraffes cannot mate why can't they not have babies why is that he's asking all of these questions and you know where what he does to seek knowledge he goes to the people who work with animals day in and day out how smart you want to know something you go to the people who actually Are living and interacting with the subject that you're fascinated with. So for example, his sources of information, they were the Bedouins. They were the Bedouins. They were the people who lived outside, who knew a lot about animals. The great-grandfathers passed on this information to their children and to the children's children. Hey, this is how animals behave. And this is what you do to take care of animals. He talked to them. He knew they were the ones who had the knowledge, because they lived and they interacted with animals day in and day out. Okay. He also did this. He wants to find out a lot about animals, not only just the Bedouins, the animal trainers in all these zoos that he's going to. They're the ones who live the knowledge, the beekeepers, the pigeon traders, the animal breeders. They're the ones who understand. Whenever you want a piece of information, you talk to the people who are constantly working with the subjects that you are interested in, because they are the ones who have real life knowledge. Okay. So I imagine a very intelligent gentleman, 70, 75, 80 years old, 85, 90, going around observing, fascinated. He's got this life force in him that is just absolutely phenomenal. And he's observing, and he's thinking deeply, and he's thinking to himself, oh, boy, our life is so interconnected. Our lives, animals' lives, the plants, the animals, the environment all around us. There is a web of interconnections. Everything is just so beautifully interrelated. And this is what he has to say. And Rebecca Stodd, uh, the brilliant writer who wrote about all of these evolutionary biologists, said the following. (coughs) The world of animals was interconnected mutually dependent. She's quoting Jahez. Everything had its place in the great web, and it's possible to account for the presence of harm and danger in the world as a sign of God's generosity and blessing. I take that back. She's not quoting him, but she is inspired by what he has to say. Everything is interconnected, and God has designed everything. Let me, let me give you two uh, three quotes from Jahid. Jahid actually, okay, before I get to, yeah. He noticed this. The animals that are near the water, they're different than the animals that are in the forest. They're different than the animals that are in the desert. They're different than the animals that are in the mountains. They're all adapting to different environments. In this day and age, this is common knowledge. But for somebody in the ninth century to be making this claim, this is outstanding. And so says this, all you need to do is light a fire in the middle of a clump of trees or in the desert and watch the various insects that converge to it. Then you'll see creatures and shapes that you never would have imagined God had created. Moreover, the creatures that come towards the fire vary according to whether the fire is in a clump of trees, the sea, or the mountains. They're all different depending on the environment that they are in. He's looking. He's observing. He's traveling from Basra, Baghdad, Samara, He's noticing all of these phenomenal things. Life forces take shape in front of him. And he's also making other observations. And he says this, every man endowed with reason may know God did not create his creation to no purpose. And God did not abandon his creatures to his fate. That he overlooked nothing left nothing without his distinctive mark, nothing in disorder or unprotected. So everything is protected. But I want to tell you, there is what some people may consider to be a twist, because that meant that nature, that meant that jahid accepted wholeheartedly that violence is a big part of nature. And I'll give you an example, two examples. He said the following. Okay, This is the law, that some existences are food for others. Okay, You have now, some thinkers are uneasy about this idea that violence exists in nature. Zahid was at peace with it. He felt this is how God created it, and it's perfectly fine. All small animals eat smaller ones, and all bigger animals cannot eat bigger ones. Men with each other are like animals. He's fine with that. He goes on, and he's even more graphic here. The lion is the king of beasts of prey, he says, and it eats carcasses. And it begins by drinking the blood. Then it opens the stomach and eats what is in it of food and saliva and the intestines together with the evacuation. He's at peace with it, completely at peace. He's even more at peace here. As for the snakes, they defend themselves from the danger of beavers and hyenas which are more powerful than themselves. The hyena can frighten the fox, and the latter frightens all the animals, which are inferior to it. This is the law that uh, some existences are food for others. No problem. Okay, Nature is benevolent, and the benevolence means that some creatures are food for others. He's at peace with it. This is the design of the world. And God made it perfectly in place this way. I'm going to now fast forward from the 9th century to the 20th century to a great American writer by the name of Aldo Leopold. And Aldo Leopold did not notice this and then learned it. Aldo Leopold was a hunter. And he thought maybe by getting rid of the wolves, there would be more deer on the mountain for him and the other hunters to hunt more deer. The problem is the deer ravished all the bushes, all the trees in the mountains, and they ruined it. They ruined the delicate ecosystem. And Aldo Leopold learned this. As he was killing a wolf, he made eye contact with the wolf. And he saw the fire die in the wolf's eyes, and he felt, What did I just do? I just killed a life force. And I just ruined. I had a hand in ruining part of the ecosystem. And so this is what Aldo Leopold said. And he describes the wolf's green eyes. He said, we reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and have known ever since, that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. The wolf and the mountain and the deer, they have a delicate relationship. They all intertwine together, creating a beautiful ecosystem with one another. He learned this, I now suspect, that just as a deer herd lives in mortal fear of its wolves, so does the mountain live in mortal fear of the deer. Too much deer on the mountains, and you're ruining it. Everything is kept perfectly in balance. Humans should not mess up with the ecosystem, should. Respect the delicate and sacred balance that's already out there in nature. Jahez understood this. And Aldo Leopold uh, Leopold also understood this. And a lot of environmental scientists are on the same page as well, too. Al-Jahez also understood, you know what? If you're repulsed by something, if you are repulsed by all the violence that you see in nature or anything that makes you feel disgusted, pause, stop. There is a reason why you are repulsed. There is a reason why you're disgusted. Pause and explain and, and think to yourself, why am I disgusted? Why am I repulsed? It's okay. It's fine. If you find all of this violence unappealing. I want to now fast forward again to, our 20, to the 20th century, and Mary Oliver, the great poet, wrote this about the fox and the hare. She said the following. Okay, so repulse violence, take a look, examine, think about it, think about your feelings, your reactions and think about the world and what's going on in the world. And she says this the fox is so quiet. He moves like a red raid, even when his shoulders tense and then snuggle down for an instant against the ground and the perfect gate of his teeth slams shut. There is nothing you can hear. But the cold creek moving over the dark pebbles and across the field and into the rest of the world. The fox just ate the hare. And what do you hear? The creek keeps on going. Life keeps on going. And even when you find in the morning the feathery scuffs of fur of the vanished snowshoe hair tangled on the pale spires of the broken flowers of the lost summer, fluttering a little, but only like the lapping threads of the wind itself. There's still nothing that you can hear. There's nothing. Out there in the world, there is nothing that you can hear but the cold creek moving, and it keeps on moving. Over the old pebbles and across the field and into another year, and into another year, Jahaz would say the fox has to eat. God blessed the fox and brought the hare in front of it for it to eat. And the creek keeps on going and life keeps on going, and this is it. Okay. So these are the interconnections between different scholars and thinkers of different times. And and Rebecca Stott has to say this about Jahil. She said, through all of these theories, he came very close to a theory of evolution and natural selection that would not be matched for another 1,000 years. He came very close to it. It's very impressive. And he continued to pay attention to the world, not phased by the violence around him, paying careful attention to patterns. And he looked in Basra. He was looking at the streets in Basra. And he's like the dog. Oh boy, it's so similar to the wolf. And they're both so similar to the fox. They must have some kind of common grandparent. It can't be. They're very similar to one another. Okay. Now it takes hundreds and hundreds of years later for others to start making the same observations. He made a note of it. And he started writing down all of these traits of these different animals, and their behavior, and their mating breeding behavior, and where is it that they thrive. And you know what happened? The older he got, the more he studied, the more he realized his earlier aim to categorize everything that God had created on the face of the earth, it was not going to materialize. It was impossible. The more he studied animals, he more he found other animals. The more he studied and categorized animals in a very neat category, the more he realized what are you going to do with animals like this one? The bird that doesn't fly. Where am I going to put it? There were <laughs> very there were animals that could not be easily categorized. Where am I going to put this? A plant that eats? What's going on here that moves? Okay. So time went on and there is no easy categorization. And it continues on into our world. Can we truly categorize everything? We can't. And he was coming to realize that. And he was also okay with it, but also puzzled as a scientist, trying to fit things in and just trying to wonder this piece of puzzle that God had put in front of him. Where exactly is it? And he's wondering. And he's thinking. And the book never got finished. Seven volumes of it, and it was still going. And had the books not fallen on him, you bet, he would have continued studying and observing. But it's sad that hundreds of years would have passed before people picked up evolutionary evolutionary biology. But it's there. From the 250 to 300 books that he created, unfortunately only 24, 25 survive. Not all of them have been translated, but it's there. And through these precious books, you hear Basra. You hear the voices of Baghdad. You hear passages from the Quran and poetry. And you hear a gentleman trying to categorize nature, and not always succeeding, and being at peace with the design of the world. And his spirit continues on through these books. Thank you so much, everybody. (laughs) Questions, comments, concerns, reflections? Terry. Okay, so Terry, some people say that Darwin did, but Rebecca Stott argues that he may not have been aware of Jahiz. So there are, there are con- conflicting points of view. That it may not have been possible for Darwin to have had a translation of Jahiz. Okay. Randy?
0: Yeah. It struck me as very postmodern, the idea, you know, a little this, a little that.
1: Right. I I hear you. OK, so uh, Randi, Randy's saying that Jahed's books are very much postmodern. Let me go to that slide. In that, they have a mix of everything. And Randy, I think, I think it is like a reflection on us in our culture, that there are times in the human mind, in human societies, where people are very much aware of how much everything is so interconnected. You know, like when I teach literature, I'm teaching history, and I'm teaching philosophy, and I'm teaching psychology, and I'm teaching, you know, culture. Definitely. I cannot separate them from one another, and so this is him. You're right. There is a little bit of everything. You know, um, postmodernism is all about questioning categories. You know, and and he he puts it in, but he realizes that in order to understand, I should categorize, and then when he's not able to do so, he's also fine with it because this is a sign of God. Comments, questions, yes? Was he a teacher Was, what? was, was he a teacher? <coughs> I do not think so. I do not think so. I'm going through my mind. He spent his time in book stalls. The caliph attempted to have him tutor his children But because his eyes were constantly, like, never blinked, and he was constantly looking, the children were scared of him, unfortunately. So they lost out on a, wait a second, I did answer your question. There was an attempt for him to be a teacher. And and the, uh, the caliph wanted him to teach his children, but the children were frightened. And so what he did was he frequented the mosques, and he was debating and observing with them. And he took on more of a student role in that he was talking to the Bedouins and the beekeepers and the animal uh, and animal trainers. So in his life, he saw himself more as a lifelong learner and a student rather than a teacher. It's a great question. Uh, Yes.
2: uh, Yeah.
1: Okay. In one of his books, he talks about um, there's a book called The Book of Misers, and it's a satire. And there is another book about uh, the strength of the African race. And these are the two books that I am familiar with, The Book of Misers and the book uh, that praises the African race. But the others, the titles for the others, I'm I'm not sure of. Yes. What is it? Oh through 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 the through his writings he captured the voice of the people of Basra and Baghdad. So so through the way that he wrote, he would listen to the people in the mosque, the people debating, and he would write it all down. So it's as if we're hearing their voices from so long ago. Yeah. Michael.
2: Someone you would study if you were studying history or something in in, the Middle East or something.
1: Yes. Oh oh boy, yes. He would be somebody that would be very interesting to study, right? You know, he's very interesting. I mean, for him to come up with a lot of these ideas, way ahead of Darwin, way ahead of these evolutionary biologists, he's somebody extremely interesting because he not only talks about biology. But he also pokes fun of the people around him. He also looks at religion in a very interesting way. In our day and age, religion, maybe there are a few or some who tend to think of religion as very uh, upright and something very serious. And he did see it that way. But he did not mind also putting satire and mockery He was a very religious man, and he did not find that to be very strange. To answer the gentleman over here, he did write about religion tremendously. And he wrote literature as well, too. And he would be studied for all of these different contributions to how he viewed religion, and and how he mocked others, and how there was satire in a lot of his works. Randy. right you know there there is there isn't a sense of conflict in in his writings and in his observations. Uh, animals adapt to their environments. animals that are very strong thrive very much so it means that the weaker animals are gonna learn to adapt as well too you don't you're right Randy there, there's not a sense of, of conflict you know he sees evolution, continuing you know, in front of him, evidences of it in front of him. And he goes and prays his five prayers. You know, he's perfectly fine. He goes and he reads the Quran. It's perfectly fine with him, both. I mean, it seems like the more human society wants to divide and categorize, the more it limits the mind. And the more it opens up for an engaged discussion, the more it broadens the mind, and it keeps it helps somebody like Jawahz live in peace, in that he can look and make all these theories about evolution and be at peace with his surroundings and with his religion, and he's very fine with it. Okay. More questions, more observations. Uh, yes.
2: Why all of his books uh, were written when he was 70 years old, like why he didn't write work his books when he was young?
1: I'm sure he did. But the Book of Living Beings was when he was older, OK? And I also want to, want to tell you something. When you are younger, you tend to read a lot and a lot. And by reading, you're gathering so much information. So you read, like I mentioned, the book stalls in Basra, OK? He would actually rent, you know, now now we have, you know, our colleges, our high schools, but for him, well, here it is. This is his college. This is his high school. So when, when you're younger, you know, you're reading and you're reading and you're reading and you're putting it all in your mind and you're making all of these connections. The best thing to do is to also write and respond immediately. But this depth of thinking that comes from the knowledge and from all of this reading. It's going to manifest itself. It's going to create a lot of connections in your mind so that you're making your own connections later on in life. But the Book of Living Beings is the one that he started in his late 60s, early 70s. But those other books must have been when he was younger. Great observation, great question. More questions? Yes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The the more we open up to understanding other cultures and other cultures' contributions, and the more that we see the common humanity, the more that we pick up themes that there was a time in the world that being 70 and 80 and 90 years old was completely fine, that you were wise and you were respected. The more we pick that up, and learn it and see that Al-Jahaz, yeah, you know, an Arab African, that he's, he pretty much has the same enthusiasm that a lot of our students do. The more we come to understand one another, the more we see the humanity in one another, the better. And I want to tell you, um, this is part of the reason why earlier this semester I had a, discuss- I had a presentation on a chemist by the name of Jabir ibn Hayyan, and then later on, astronomers in the Middle East. Because we need to piece together that our world, Michael, can you hold it for me? our world, the history has been, you know, like. Uh, let me tell you this: when I was looking into the history of astronomy, you have the acknowledgement of the Persian and the Indian and the Greek scientists. But then what you have is a big gap. And then it continues on to Western science. But wait a second. That big gap, Middle Eastern people were working tremendously during this time. And I think it's unfair (coughs) to people from the Middle East, and it's unfair to the rest of our humanity and to the rest of the people not to have this gap filled. I saw that in astronomy. I saw that when looking into alchemy, into alchemy as well, too. People in Europe, they took a lot of alchemical texts from the Middle East, translated it from the Arabic to the Latin, and then forgot about the contributions. So these gaps in the history, they need to come back, and they need to be acknowledged so that we could see the continuity of human thinking as it moves on. Troy.
0: I would just add, I think this is why it's so important that you're doing this series, it's not just that ancient Greek texts were translated (coughs) into Arabic and preserved, right? But that Arab and Muslim scholars added to that thought and that there are many um, medieval uh, Christian writers that are important to uh, Christian history who were reading Arabic. And the thoughts that they were engaging in from yes. those scholars that were their peers and contemporaries. So there was a, a sharing between Arabic into Latin from ancient yes. Greek that in Western uh, civilization, at least in our way we tell that history now, right. is sort of just deleted. There's a whole lot of history and politics behind yeah. that. You kind of jump from the Greeks to, oh, here's Descartes, and, and there's 800 years of That led up to Darwin's yes. thinking. Yeah. I and mean, I guarantee that this work was part of that tradition yeah. that Darwin put together into the mechanics and really outlined it the most graceful way that we oh. had. So, anyway, sorry to right. but I think no, awesome. no, that's, that's, that's. This conversation is super important.
1: That, and I, I agree with you. And Troy, like when Middle East, the, the contributions of Middle Eastern people, when it's acknowledged, it's acknowledged as they were the translators. And that's it. You know, it's as if they took the ancient Greek and, oh, thank God they preserved it. No, they were really interacting with it. And as a matter of fact, they would not only translate once, those translations that were in the Arabic, they would look at the Greek once again and look at the, the Syriac and the Arabic and they would translate it again because. Translation itself is an art. In translating, in interpreting, you miss things. You highlight things. You add things. Different authors, different translators would add on to it, and then they would actually comment and continue on the science that was in the books. The gentleman in the back? I I did. okay. All right. Questions, other comments? Questions, thoughts, reflections?
2: Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. All
1: right. <laughs> okay. Now, <laughs> as a professor of literature, I too am very fascinated by symbols and by human beings and the life, the journeys of life that they go through. I just, out of curiosity, what interested you about it? It's just like, since I'm, I understand of like, kind of like,
2: the way you, would you do, my father told me I understand that you do bad things, you're gonna go away, that you do things, you're gonna go away good. Okay. Right. like, knowledge, knowledge the universe.
1: Okay, very, very interesting. So, as a Muslim student, your father taught you that if you do good in the world, the good will come back to you. So, you see that it's as if, like, the books carried him to heaven then. Okay, all the good, you know, he read the books, he benefited so much from the books, he wrote books, this was his life, and then the books ended his life and carried him off into the afterlife. Okay. It's an amazing interpretation, an amazing outlook. I, I'm i fascinated that this also happened to him as well, too. Beautiful interpretation. More from you, from anybody else. Comments, reflections, questions?
2: What was his nickname again? Bug Eyes or something?
1: Uh, goggle The goggle-eyed. goggle eyed Jah. Yeah.
2: like a term of endearment for him? Yes.
1: Yeah.
2: Can I call somebody that? So <laughs> nice, no they
0: know what
1: I was about? No, they would, no um no 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 <laughs> yeah it's it's more like older you know so yeah yeah gentleman in the back yes okay all right so there is politics and sele- uh, and that goes behind what gets to be taught and what does not get to be taught. And so there is a special selection that goes into the process. I myself only learned of Darwin as well too. And thankfully, you know, we're at a time when the internet is around and we could look more and we could do our own research And find our own knowledge. But you know, the story of al-Jahid really teaches us to question, why is it that we're learning this? Could there be more? Could there be more out there? Question what is being given to you. Learn it. Learn Darwin, left and right, but then ask yourself, could there be more? Could a different culture have contributed something that I am not aware of? And if they did, well why is it that they are being their contributions are being silenced okay so keep that all of you keep it in mind keep in mind the <laughs> politics that does go beyond behind selecting a specific kind of scientist historian and and writers even the literature that there is more behind it i completely understand it's tough it's tough to create a class and to teach a, Specific kinds of texts, but there's more to life out there in any class that you take. Eric.
2: Right. So we in the process. And I think for Eve View standing here today, he might even say as much. Do you know what I mean? I don't I don't take him as a guy who would just say this is all mine. Right. All right although in theory, that's yes, the reason he published the theory. Anyway, someone else began to publish it because they beat him into the publication. Right. He had his stuffed under his mattress and it conflicted with his ideas of Christianity. He said, I don't want to publish this because it conflicts, right? Right. But then the good old fashioned green took over. He's like, I want credit. So he okay. won't publish it.
1: yes there are a lot of others yeah the history i know i i agree with you it, it is there you know but but what i also i want to encourage like you are right like those classes when you when you become more specialized you do cover them you you do but it's like when you are taking these survey classes it's all like very quick like you are saying And some people do get overlooked, which is why, for those of you who are very interested, research, research the internet, people, people who are interested. Because then you're going to see, you're going to begin to fill in the gaps. Comments, questions, reflections? Anything to add to the conversation? Okay, so we're going to continue the conversation. But afterwards, not for now. Thank you so much. Thank you for being an awesome audience. Thank you.